0: you can pretty quickly look at your own life and your own consumption patterns and figure out what's that one thing that you buy every day or every week that you know you get rid of pretty quickly. And for me, when I was in the workplace, it was water bottles. Uh, I was buying at least a couple of a day, I'm embarrassed to say now. And so when I say pick one thing, pick the thing that you know you're consuming, make a commitment uh-huh. To find an alternative right. to that yeah. thing and then promise yourself you're going to keep the commitment. So, when I picked water bottles as my thing, I went out and got a cool, swell um, water bottle, stainless steel water bottle. I brought it with me everywhere. If I forgot it, I'd let myself go thirsty so I wouldn't forget it the next day. <laughs> and that was my thing. Here.
1: Welcome to the Environmental Transformation Podcast, where we talk with industry leaders who are making an impact in their businesses. Each leader is solving complex challenges and providing solutions within their respective areas of expertise. Our host is Sean Grady. He is passionate about helping clients transform their businesses and solving their environmental challenges. And here's our host, Sean Grady. Okay, listeners, do you sometimes feel like you need additional training to improve your performance so that you can start crushing it? Or maybe you just want to advance in your career and become a real success, but just don't know how. Well, look no further. Mark Hernandez has over 20 years of experience in the industry and is an independent certified John Maxwell speaker, trainer, and coach. Mark dishes out high energy and impactful motivational keynotes and workshops for organizations on leadership. And take it from me, if you want to level up and create a culture of high performance, Mark provides engaging exercises with practical applications that can immediately be applied to deliver success. Visit Mark's website at www.markspeaks.co to download your free leadership packet. That's www.markspeaks.co. You can also schedule Mark to speak at one of your next events from his website as well. If you book a future event with Mark before the end of the year, you can save 20% by using promotional code ETNATION. That's right, you can save 20% by using promotional code ETNATION. So what else do you have to lose? Contact Mark today. Today's guest is Stephanie Miller, and Stephanie recently uh, just wrote a book called Zero Waste Living, The 80-20 Way, The Busy Person's Guide to a Lighter Footprint. Stephanie, thank you for joining the show, and welcome to the Environmental Transformation Podcast.
0: Thanks, Sean. It's great to join you.
1: Well... You know, uh, I, I was uh, reading, uh, uh, kind of scrolling on LinkedIn the, a couple months ago and, and came by your book post that you just pushed out. And I thought, wow, that's an interesting uh, project. Uh, let me see if I can reach out to Stephanie and see if we can't bring her on the show and talk about her book and and learn more about it. But uh, before we do, let me give you, a, the, let me give the listeners a quick bio about you. Uh, Stephanie Miller has founded, uh, she founded the Zero Waste Uh, in D.C. to focus on the application of zero waste uh, strategies that have real and sustainable impacts with the goal of reaching as wide an audience as possible. And she provides advisory services to individual households as well as community and corporate presentations. Within her 25-year career at at the International Finance Corporation, IFC, and the private sector arm of the World uh, Bank Group, she serves as the, she served as the director of IFC's climate business department where she led global teams uh, to find innovative solutions to climate change so I mean you've been kind of in the weeds of this a bit for quite a while in a professional sense uh, globally so that's kind of exciting so uh, maybe we'll learn a little more about your journey there but yeah uh, Tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, what made you publish your, your new book and uh, maybe a little bit about yourself and, and what made you write the book.
0: Sure. So I. Uh- for my entire adult life, I've been a busy person, like so many of us, <laughs> and I I didn't feel like I ever had the time to do what I thought was right at home in terms of the environment. So, things like recycling carefully, being um, judicious about bringing single-use plastic into my life, uh, buying products that were good for the environment, composting wasn't even on the horizon. But... Um, I uh, realized that um, I wanted to do more, but was frustrated that I couldn't, And and I had these thoughts while I was actually leading climate change for the International Finance Corporation, where it was my job to help governments and private sector to get on a more sustainable path, and yet in my own life, I'd come home and realize I wasn't doing enough. And then a couple of years ago, I left the organization after the 25 intense years that I had there. I decided I'd, I'd give myself a gap year, uh, spend a little more time with my son before he headed off to college. Okay. And finally had some time on my hands. Uh, and decided I'd try to tackle what it is I could do to reduce my own carbon and waste footprint. And what I realized was that uh, the obstacle I had was a bit this notion that I had to get to the zero in zero waste. Ah, right, and that, right. uh, that I could get quite far, uh, that I could get, let's say 80% there. Uh, and so I wrote the book because I wish that I could now talk to the busy person that I was a couple of years ago uh, and and now talk to other busy people who think they don't have time, but you know, hopefully, uh, point them in the right direction uh, where they can get a lot done, have a big impact with really very little effort.
1: Yeah. Well, so so it sounds like you were kind of um, you were had a little bit of a, a conviction, so to speak, uh, with the the job side of the of the of your profession, where you you were really you know helping businesses come into. Uh, a more sustainable uh, approach to managing your business and, and at home you just weren't really kind of living the the walk right so to speak and you were exactly you, you were convicted sounds like
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly
1: you're like it's like that old ver you know, the proverb you know don't do do as i say not as i do you know type thing you know uh, and and you, now you're like well i can't really say that i want to kind of actually do it and yeah I'm afraid that, that was me yep. yeah well, you know, I think we all kind of go through that journey. And, you know, I think we're all uh, kind of seeing little things that we can do in our daily life to, you know, just make a little difference. And I think uh, when I read your book, what struck me was, you know, it just kind of started to snowball into a little bit more and a little bit more, you know. And then I was like, wow, okay. So if we could do these little things and start implementing certain things in our life, then I think you know, then you can have this ripple effect if, if everybody really had, you know, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit of effort towards, you know, doing a, a you know more sustainable uh, at home life, right?
0: Absolutely.
1: Well, so in the book, you talked about how your experience with IFC and leading the climate business department in that area of green buildings, you know, by promoting investments in more energy and water efficient buildings. But tell us what the journey was like uh, you know, and the success and the challenges you faced in helping customers realize that implementing those sustainable designs and those strategies really helped out with the ROI. You know, is really worth the upfront investment to, you know, see some bigger cost savings down the road. What was that like? And, you know, maybe you can talk a little bit about that journey there because I think that's kind of what re- you really liked it about your job and it really motivated you to really kind of tr- make changes at all.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the, the specific journey on uh, the green buildings program that we built up in that organization, which was such a big success story, started off with just an idea, uh, you know, taking of doing the, the numbers work and realizing what a huge impact buildings have in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. They account for about 20 percent. Uh, of greenhouse gas emissions and 40% of electricity, and the countries we were working with in the emerging markets, uh, these are countries where the cities are growing, and therefore the number, the built environment, as it's called, uh, uh-huh. was uh, was really growing exponentially. So we saw an opportunity. I was able to hire an, a phenomenal architect who's still there, Prashant Kapoor, and we devised a a, a a tool that uh, helped companies figure out what the easy things were that they could do Uh uh, that would have the the payback, the really quick payback, but yield um, a a, a real efficiency in terms of energy and water use. Uh And the idea of it was uh, to try to get new buildings, to a place where they'd commit to being 20% more efficient than other buildings in the water use and energy use space. Uh Um, And that became the the Green Buildings uh, program. We called it EDGE Excellence in Design for Greater Efficiency. And, you know, the interesting thing is it was not really the clients who were the obstacles to pushing this out. Like you see so many times I was in a bureaucracy, a wonderful bureaucracy, but nonetheless, a bureaucracy. And when you come up with a new idea, uh, colleagues uh, want to know that this is something that's not going to slow them down, that they can get yeah. their deal through and uh, was green buildings in this program going to be something that stood in the way of, you know, booking deals with our clients. Right. Um, so anyway, the really interesting thing was how many months it took for us to finally put our proposal in front of a, a client. And once we did, it took off because I think clients were very quick to see if the they get the upfront yeah, uh, paybacks, then um, it's a no-brainer. And uh, yeah, the program is, a I think, more than a $6 billion business for the organization now. So it's oh, it's I in the it. area of climate, it was definitely one of the success stories.
1: Wow, so what would, what would be the, it was, so what, that program is kind of similar to like, say, a leads building design, uh, you know, project, but not as extensive. Is that kind of, is that right? You know, so because it yeah. was that a barrier, was leads a barrier, and then edge was a little easier to achieve?
0: Well, leads was like, lead is the gold standard in a certain way, but it's also not very accessible. And in the sense that, The LEED certification is expensive. Uh Uh, It's kind of the the first in a market would want to get LEED certified. The first five-star hotel, let's say, or the first major office building in a market. But for your your more, um, for example, we were dealing with low-income housing uh, developments those are not uh, the kind of clients that are going to want to yeah. pay tens of thousands of dollars to Makes get sense. all the bells and whistles and lead is a wonderful program, but it does have a lot of bells and whistles attached to it. Uh, so you've got things like, uh, you know, if you install showers in the gym so that people can bike to work and then shower when they get there, yeah. Those are the sorts of things that are emerging market clients we didn't, think those were as important as really getting at the root of the energy savings and the water savings and the embedded energy in building materials as well. So when you stripped away all the bells and whistles, we came up with a pretty simple Excel based but powerful tool. that became a standard because clients felt like they wanted to know what they could do to be recognized for, for undergoing this, um, this program. Yeah. And so it, it took off. Uh, oh, that's, of that's,
1: that is fantastic. And I love that, uh, you were able to make such a big difference through that program and, and sees a lot of, you know, positive, uh, outcomes. And, um, and I can see the difference in the need for something like an edge versus a leads, you know, leads is more of like that new building design uh, versus maybe a small, like you said, residential communities or something that's maybe already there. and It's a retrofit. So um, that's pretty good. Um, well, how did that experience shape your personal convic- convictions to climate change? You know that, you know, we uh, we can do as individuals. I mean, what what made you make that shift once you're like, man, we're making such a big difference and now I want to do something, you know, personally?
0: Yeah. Well, once I left the organization, as I said, I, I really wanted to tackle the, the what I could do at home. I think what, what that reminded me of, that green buildings experience, was that climate change is complex and you've uh-huh. got to break it down. You've got to keep it simple um, and accessible. Right. And so I think as I started going down my own path and I realized there were thousands of things out there just like in a building you can design in thousands of solutions doesn't mean they all have the same impact Uh Uh, and so I think I sort of took that idea of um, the need for simplicity the need for pragmatism and the need to not let the perfect get in the way of progress. Right, right. Uh, those were the pieces that I took away from me from that experience as I was trying to do this on my own.
1: Oh, that's great. I mean, and and you're right. I mean, there the climate change. There's so many inputs into that equation, right? Uh, and and you start everything's interconnected in some way. It seems like uh, at least that's kind of my you know kind of observation. Um, so you mentioned, you know, in the book, a funny little thing happened, and so let's talk about this funny little thing and, and what, what really happened there.
0: Yeah, so it's it's kind of silly, but I, I always thought I really bothered by all this plastic that I bring home. I used to go to the dry cleaners once or twice a week with my work clothes suits and I'd come home with all this plastic film. And I, I don't know why it took me quitting my job to do this thing that I'd been meaning to do, which was to go into the dry cleaner. So I did this the week after I quit my job, went into the dry cleaners. And I very timidly said, you know, would you mind putting my clothes into my own garment bag instead of wrapping it up in this plastic? And turned out it was not a big deal at all. And that got me wondering, well, would they, with the would the dry my local dry cleaner be willing to actually adopt a program where they make it easier for other clients to other customers to get these reusable garment yeah, bags? Right. And they did. It wasn't. A, I mean, it didn't occur to them. But once I brought the idea up to them, they thought it was a no brainer and they started doing it. And uh, and it took off. Uh, I helped them a little bit. I posted some signs in the neighborhood, uh-huh. uh, letting people know how much plastic from dry cleaners goes into landfills, and letting uh, yeah. them know that this was an option. Yeah. So it was. It took off. You walk into that dry cleaners today, even during COVID, and a third of the customers they say now use these reusable bags. So you walk in, you used to see a sea of plastic, right. and now you see interspersed uh these green reusable garment bags and then a the little bit of plastic in between so it was really cool to see this idea take off so quickly yeah
1: you're making um, a difference yeah you know? it's like it's a small little impact right there with your uh, dry cleaner
0: yeah but it was so quick um so it was yeah. great and it it made me wonder what else i could do
1: well so that kind of spurred on you know this idea uh apparently that you know well maybe Maybe we gotta start a, a writing a book about all this because you wanted to like really kind of dive into this climate change and zero waste and and uh, and so tell us about you know how you started the the book.
0: Well, the book actually didn't come till later. Uh, it came up. It was a very <laughs> unexpected project that emerged over the summer. Um, a publisher asked me if I heard me speak on this topic and asked me if I'd be willing to uh, write a book about it as part of this resetting our future series, which is being written during the pandemic to try to plant some uh, seeds um, for change that could take uh. hold during and after the pandemic. But what what happened after that dry cleaner um, incident, if you will, or, or initiative is that a friend of mine formally introduced me to this idea of zero waste living. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, un- I then understood that these things I wanted to do around reducing my carbon and waste footprint had a name. Uh, so zero waste living is very simply this movement to reduce your consumption and therefore reduce your waste. And uh, it intersects with a lot of different movements. But for me, it was particularly appealing because it has this great um, intersection with uh, environment and climate. And uh-huh. obviously, the less we uh, consume, uh, less we waste, uh, the less production and therefore the energy... Love greenhouse gas, right? Exactly, exactly. Right. So it was cool to realize there was actually a whole movement around this that I could plug into.
1: And there was a connection between, you know, doing something green, like, you know, reusing bags to, uh, you know, just improving recycling to, you know, so then you got a little deeper into that whole concept with the zero waste living approach. So you must have like read some books or something about it and probably got excited about, you know, how can, can I really do that?
0: yeah I, I i did a lot of research and you know i come from an organization where you quantify everything so i was really <laughs> interested <laughs> in finding the science uh behind it uh, i stumbled on a great book uh that was put together by uh, some climate scientists called drawdown uh-huh. and it, it lists 80 actions that can be taken by government by private sector and by individuals to um, to reverse climate change, not just uh-huh. uh, mitigate. And I got really excited about that because, and then I did some more research and realized that if you looked at all the things that could be done and you scoured those opportunities for what exists, wh- where, where is it that the individual can have the most impact? Uh-huh. It turns out that there are some really interesting things on, on that list. Uh, that I hadn't really connected uh, completely before that with uh-huh. being so uh, much in the hands of the individual. So, for example, um, you know, the the number three thing on the list is reducing food waste. I, I had no idea food waste was that uh-huh. significant, uh, and not only that. So, so I I learned that food waste, if you actually ranked it. Um, in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, it would be third behind the U.S. and China. So that's that wow. really gave me pause, wow. and I thought, "Oh, yeah. that's that's interesting." But even more interesting, and I I learned this by talking to some food waste experts, that the the food waste problem exists at many at many levels. Of course, uh, at the farm and in distribution and transportation and uh, grocery stores and restaurants. but the single most important player in this food waste problem is actually at the is the household. Hmm. And so that was interesting and uh, and I realized that that um, there were quite a few things on the list that fell in more of the domain of the household than than any other player.
1: Hmm. okay, so so you're getting into you know, some of these real tangible things that individuals can do. And um and you realize that, you know, it's gonna be a lot to really kind of individually <laughs> try to accomplish. So you thought about this uh this this more of a more realistic approach of the 8020 rule concept of zero waste living. So talk about that.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean the the you know there's something about the zero waste movement that is exciting and also daunting and <laughs> i think for busy people it's quite daunting um I, I love the idea of you know the diy projects that you can do and there are hundreds of them that are uh suggested um some ones that i, I incorporated in my life like making my own household cleaner but others they're I just wasn't even when I wasn't too busy, yeah. uh, I, wasn't, I just wasn't going to do like make your own paper. Right. Um, and so so the, the, the idea of 80-20 is, um, you know, it's interesting. <laughs> Since I wrote the book, I realized about half of my community, half my friends have heard of this and the other half haven't. So I'll just say 80-20 is something we used to talk about all the time in my oh, workplace. Yeah. You know, the idea that you could really, f- not all actions are equal. And if you focused on about the 20% most impactful things you could get about 80% of the result. And so where I used to work, we used to say, you know, 80% of our business came from 20% of our clients. And right. yeah, I used to manage a large that, team yeah. and I'd say, Ah, oh, I'm spending 80% of my time with 20% of my staff. Uh, but I realized this could have a really good application for what I was trying to do on zero waste. Uh-huh. And um, so it all kind of came together for me when I was looking through the most uh, the, the actions that could be taken by individuals. And I realized if I sifted them for two factors, I could come up with a much more manageable list of actions, the, the, the 20%, if you will. Uh-huh. Um, and um, the, uh, the, the, the way I, the way I kind of distilled it, well, the two things I was sifting for were they had to be easy we're all busy yeah, yeah. and they had to be really impactful okay. and so when i looked at it from just that vantage point easy and impactful there were not so many things that could be done and to to know that you're having a really big impact and i i i, I sort of landed on what i call my magic three
1: The magic three right so let's get into that the magic three what are the magic three that somebody you know personally can control to you know make an impact uh, at the individual level uh so that the end the outcomes are has the biggest impact in your opinion
0: (laughs) yeah so in in my exactly in my opinion these three things are what i call focus on food purge plastics and Uh, recycle right okay all right and that's pretty much how I, i i constructed the book around these three themes okay and i I present a total of 10 actions. That's it, just 10 well, that yeah. fall into these three themes that I am quite convinced if we were to all focus on these, uh, it would make a huge difference.
1: Well, that's one of the things when I read the book that I liked. You know, you kind of prefaced the the topic, you kind of really kind of gave some context to, you know, why that's important, but then you gave some pretty practical action items that the individual could take. I mean, they're not the all end-all, be-all of all of them, but they were really good. And uh, so maybe we'll get into a few of these because I thought they were great. Um, so you talk about, you know, food is one. And, and then you talk about purge plastics and recycling. And those things, when you think about it, you're like, okay, I get recycling. And I get maybe trying to not use plastics. But I bet you most people don't think about food as being the thing that can make one of the biggest impacts. So let's talk about... How does eating a more plant based diet reduce greenhouse gas emissions that will eventually, or, you know, have some effect in climate change, positive effect?
0: Yeah. So I am not a vegetarian. But uh, I, all my friends who are vegetarians have been telling me for some time Stephanie, if you really want to make a difference, you should become a vegetarian. So th- this part was less of a surprise <laughs> really to a me. Guilt on you there. <laughs> yes, yes. I, my vegetarian friends okay, are, good at, are, are very good at that but it is true and it, you know i looked at the data it is almost 15 percent livestock accounts for 14 and a half percent of global greenhouse gas emissions so it's extremely significant i think the issue and if you come back to the 80 20 concept is that um you know a lot realistically a lot of people who are not vegetarian are not going to suddenly become vegetarian for climate reasons. I wish more people yeah. did and I would like to yeah. move, I am moving in that direction. So I now call myself a partial vegetarian. Okay. And um, and I think uh, it feels good to make the shift. It's, it's healthier, of course, we've all read about that, but it feels good to make a substantial uh, difference. And I'll just say on this point that, um, you know, I grew up and I, I'm embarrassed to say I raised my son to believe that, you know, the dinner meal is a full meal if you've got several things on the table. But one of them is some I mean. form of animal protein. Sure. I'm not proud of it, but that's how he was raised and that's how I was raised. And so yeah. to get so, yeah. to partial vegetarian has not been easy, but it's been fun because I've made it fun. And so one of the things I've been doing is to try to increase my repertoire of vegetarian meals. I like cooking, I don't have a lot of time now, but I, so I've searched for recipes that are really good and that don't take a lot of time. And I post about them every week on my social media. By the way, anyone listening wants to join my vegetarian cook along, I'd be so thrilled. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I think with so many things, um, if you make it fun, <laughs> and also if you don't announce that you're going to be serving vegetarian at the dinner uh, tonight, then uh, you can get away with, with quite a bit. <laughs>
1: one thing too that i read in the book that really struck me was the carbon intensity uh of the various food and 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 talk about the greenhouse gas emissions per kilogram of food that you know that in the product chart because i thought that was like whoa yeah it kind of breaks down this uh this whole concept of greenhouse gas and 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 basically, to me, it attached the you know it really real made made the real kind of connection for me. Going okay, well, maybe if I do eat more vegetables, I can actually <laughs> reduce the green. <greenhouse> yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah, no, it's uh, it was really eye opening, um, and I, I think one of the things I'm gonna I'm gonna try to give less this holiday to be to be more in line with uh, what I'm preaching but I'm gonna see if I can make a postcard of this um, greenhouse this chart that shows greenhouse gas emissions per kilogram of food item because it's so powerful uh, wow. and yeah and it's you know it's back to the all or nothing is not that helpful it's not very practical and here's a place where if you break it down you can actually see, not just that it's its not all meat is bad and all vegetables are good, although that's pretty much true, but but there's a big difference between beef and chicken and fish. And it's mm. important to know that yeah. you will make a difference tonight if you choose one over another. So, for example, uh, I, I show a chart in the book that breaks it down. So one kilogram of beef, not surprisingly, that's the biggest culprit, beef is um it, it contributes to 60 kilograms of carbon emissions. So that's not great. Uh you should if you're going to have to if you want your beef and your steak, you know, I would say try to save it for a special occasion. That's what we try to do. Lamb is is just under that but quite significantly uh less. It's only 24 instead of 60 uh kilograms. And I won't go through the whole chart, but you get to chicken, chicken is 10 times less than beef in terms of yeah. uh, the contribution to, to greenhouse gas. And half of chicken is wild caught salmon, only three kilograms uh, of uh, carbon emissions for every kilogram of fish. So you can quickly see you have a choice every night, every day, every meal right. about what you eat. And, uh, and it makes a huge difference. So even um, if you
1: still ate meat, but you ate, you know, the, the less, you know, of the impact of, for greenhouse gas, that meat instead, like chicken or fish, you're still making a huge difference in the emissions factor by not eating say beef.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, I personally have a goal, I'm not saying everyone needs to have this goal, but if you, it, sort of 80-20, my goal is to get uh, dinners or the main meals where, where it becomes meat oriented. So my goal is to get to three to four vegetarian meals a week. Not easy, but you know, it's not like buy a Tesla or uh, don't fly anymore. It's not that kind of decision. Will I have one more vegetarian meal a week? takes yeah. a little bit of planning, uh, but it's not a huge hardship for most of us. So uh, I find that kind of, you know, achievable goal, if I put it in front of myself, I can, you know, if I and I track it, I can make it happen.
1: Wow. I mean, you kind of look at this and you're like, you, yeah, we're talking uh, climate warriors uh, that are just, you know, making an impact by eating better.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a big one. That's a big one you know, if you go back to this concept of the the 80 actions that could be taken to reverse climate change, a plant-rich diet, which doesn't necessarily mean a uh, becoming vegetarian, but a plant-rich diet is number four on that list of 80. So it's huge. It, it is truly significant. And of course, plant-based diet is mostly in the hands of the individual. It's not too much in the hands of government and private sector. It's all all with us to make yeah, those decisions.
1: Right, yeah, we can make that decision ourselves and decide what we want to eat. And uh, But I did think that was a really telling, uh, real true connection for the individual to make a difference. And and just think, you know, it's just like if it's just you and I making that decision, And I mean, we got what, you know, 100, 300 million people in in the US. I mean, what if we all started to make just a little bit? Yeah. That greenhouse, you know, the ripple effect would take effect, right? Globally, it would take effect, you know. So, um, and I think, you know, the positives, uh, you live a healthier life by having more vegetables in your your, uh, diet. So
0: I tell myself that every vegetarian vegetarian meal
1: it's a win-win right
0: yeah yeah for sure
1: we still have to make the decision to make the right decision to eat but uh you know what to eat but still this episode is sponsored by the theodore roosevelt conservation partnership or trcp whose mission is to guarantee all americans quality places to hunt and fish They do this by uniting and amplifying voices of their 60 organizational partners and more than 100,000 individual advocates to affect policy change in Washington, D.C. and across the country. Right now, a top priority of the TRCP is to convince lawmakers to invest in conservation projects and programs that benefit fish and wildlife while providing Americans opportunities to work. Congress can boost the outdoor recreation economy and create jobs in many other sectors by funding improvements to wetlands, migration corridors, access roads, boat ramps, campgrounds, and visitor facilities on public lands. To learn more and become a member of the TRCP, visit www.trcp.org backslash conservation That's www.trcp.org backslash conservation Okay, so we talked about you know the the emissions you know situation, but are there other things that we can do around food waste? Because you talked about food waste being the number three issue of greenhouse gas. You know, talk about food waste. Because what's how how, how does that happen? Uh, yeah. What's the impact? I mean, I mean, we yeah. can probably all think about it, but
0: so of all the things that I stumbled on in these couple of years the food waste issue was the biggest surprise for me. And we we talked about already how significant it is in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, that it's number three on this list of things that could be done to reverse uh, climate change and how significant it is in terms of being able to be solved at the household level. But the thing about food waste is you've got to really You've got to have some focus. And so, uh, you know, I said I only give 10 action steps in the whole book. Five of them relate to food waste because it's <laughs> so important. Yeah. And, you know, I'll just say, gosh, I it, you, you should never leave the house without ch- making a list for what you're going to buy at the grocery store. Apparently, more than a third of Americans don't check what's in their fridge and their pantries before they go shopping. We just oh. were, we're shopping for Thanksgiving and thank goodness we did check because we had, I would say 20% of the ingredients we otherwise would have bought. So the first step is just to not bring things home that you don't need and that you're not going to eat. And we can talk more about Thanksgiving because, uh, you know, we'll be talking about the after effects of Thanksgiving when this is aired and, uh, it's, Thanksgiving is one of the biggest food waste issues in this country, um, so it's, it's it's important to get it right. The, um, the, a friend of mine read my book and said, you know, <clears throat> I love the way you make the fridge and your freezer strategic partners. And I don't actually use that phrasing, but I love that. So so the thing that I think is so important is once you do bring food into your home, you want to make sure to eat it or do something with it that isn't going to- And don't waste you.
1: it right? You just waste your money.
0: So, so my thing that I do is called the three minute daily fridge review. And that sounds like a commitment, but it's really two to three minutes a day, not a huge investment of time, but I swear it makes a huge difference in how much we are ending up throwing away at the end of the week. So for us, when i when i talk about this fridge review the the goal is to look in the fridge and see the things that are near their expiration you know you know you you made something a couple nights ago maybe it's leftovers you had it last night for leftovers you're not going to have it again tonight well that's where your freezer comes in sure. you can throw it in the freezer and it'll be a lovely meal in a few weeks we put a label on the fridge on one of the shelves that says eat me first and Basically, that's the signal to anyone else in the house that if they want to go for a snack or they need an extra meal or that's that's where they should look first. And the other thing I I really make a a point of doing is to store everything in uh, transparent containers. You don't have to go out and buy a whole bunch of new stuff. You could put it even in large empty jars, glass jars. But if you can't see what's there. You know how it is. You open the fridge, yeah. you push it aside, and then the next time you open it, there's mold on it. So getting getting it right um, at the at that stage before it goes bad is so important. And the freezer part comes in, and this was so fascinating to me. I had no idea how many things you could freeze. I didn't know you could freeze besides ice cream. You can freeze all dairy products. They actually freeze really well. So we pretty much go through. I'm not a big dairy drinker, but others in this household are, and we go through the milk. But you know, if we've got a little bit of half and half left, you can freeze that. If you squeeze a lemon for a recipe and you don't need the other half, you can squeeze. You can squeeze the rest and save the juice, uh, and you know, defrost it when you need it. So I think the use of the freezer has been a lifesaver for for us in reducing our food waste that's that's been really huge
1: so when you did the research on the food waste did you see that there was um maybe you know regions of the world i mean like in europe i'm kind of thinking and i've been to europe a few times and uh especially like in france i mean those guys you know they're they're going to the farmer's market like every day almost they don't really buy a lot of food to store in their homes per se they eat a lot more fresher Uh, They probably don't have the same challenges that maybe I mean, sure, they have some of the same challenges, but maybe not as big as we have here in the U.S. I don't know. What do
0: you think? Yeah, that's a a really interesting point. So I would say the biggest difference is between developed and developing countries, developing countries. They just don't waste as much food. They're more careful. Uh, You know, they don't want to waste it. They don't want to spend money. There are figures on I think it's 16.000. Hundred. I don't want to give the wrong figure, but I think it's something like 16, $1,600 a year of the average U.S. family of four wastes in terms of groceries. Anyway, that doesn't happen in developing countries nearly as much as it happens in developed. You raise a really interesting point about Europe. Um, I lived in Europe for uh, three years uh, as part of my job. I was in Paris. Um, you can oh, feel lucky sorry you. for me. It was, <laughs> yeah, it was a, not a hardship post, uh, but it was, you know, one of the most wonderful things is that I would not... Uh, I I did not waste a lot of food. I wasn't thinking about it at the time, but because I was shopping for our dinner every single day. I mean, the sure. shops were right there. The markets, the farmers markets were right there. So definitely there is something to the the frequency um, so that you've always got sort of top of mind. Well, this is what I'm making tonight. And you don't have a whole freezer fridge full of, of other things you don't need
1: that's one way to kind of control it. Right. I mean, and then that way you're not wasting as much if you kind of do more of a daily or every other day uh, purchase uh, and you kind of keep the cupboards a little thin. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. Although I think that's really hard now with the pandemic. Right. I mean, Well, that's true. Us, yeah. yeah that's more true. and more of us are trying to avoid going to the grocery store as often. Yeah. Uh, So a recommendation I might have made, you know, uh, a year ago is is not the same as I would make now. But it brings it you know, it makes it all the more important that you go and do your shopping. If you're now only doing it once a week or twice a week, that you do it with a list and you do it having reviewed what's already in your home.
1: Yeah. Right. Well, Okay. so we've I think we've done a pretty good job of hitting on the food. Uh, side of this so let's get a couple Ooh. let's get to the oh you got one more you want to hit
0: on one more quick? thing i have to say yeah. and i think you have a personal connection to this so i really have to bring this up okay. composting so all right once you're done with the food now even if you're really good there's some food waste that is unavoidable right. uh and some of that food waste a lot of it is compostable in almost all of it is compostable industrially but a lot of it is compostable in your own backyard. If you have a backyard yeah. that's big enough, I believe you have a master gardener in your home. Yeah. my um, wife's
1: Master gardener. And I've so built a uh, compost bin here at the house. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: And it's, I mentioned in the book, the concept of master gardener, because if you're not as lucky as we are, where I live in DC, we have so many options. We have I now compost in my own backyard, but that was intimidating at first. I used to use a service for $8 a week. They would come and pick up my vegetable and fruit scraps. Um, There's also in Washington, DC, every single neighborhood, every single ward has a free compost drop-off site. But if you look across the United States, those kind of options don't exist everywhere. So one of the things I recommend in my book for people who don't have all those options, is you can always consult with a master gardener. And I think uh, your wife will know better, but I, I think they exist in almost every community. Oh, and yeah. they're such a good source of information. Either they can take compost themselves or they know where composting can be done from what I understand.
1: Yeah, so, every every, I, every state has a county extension office and, and that's who kind of runs the uh, master gardener programs. Uh, and uh, yeah, so... You know, and, and, you know, so people on the on the on the listeners here on the podcast, you know, they may say, well, you know what? I don't what am I going to do with all this compost? Right. You know, because maybe they're not into gardening and that's OK uh, yeah. and you can drop it off. But if you if you think, you know, hey, maybe I should give uh, so this little gardening thing, uh, composting a go with it. You know, highly recommend it because uh, it'll help improve your soil and help improve your vegetable and, and, and flower growth and, and plant growth uh, and just make a much more uh sustainable environment for your home and your plants and it's a really good way to kind of manage that food waste so
0: yeah and 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 that was one of the other surprises for me was that when you put the food scraps in the compost bin instead of in your garbage which which ends up usually in the landfill um, you're avoiding methane emissions and methane is one of the most powerful greenhouse, greenhouse gases. gases much it's more powerful other. than yeah. carbon dioxide other so input. There's yeah, so I'm there. not a big gardener, but I'm doing it for that reason. And now, of course, I'm finding all sorts of uses for the compost. Oh yeah, um, yeah. but it's really important.
1: Uh, that's good. So I agree. So compost, folks, and and she's got some good uh, resources in there to talk about it. And certainly, you guys can do. Uh, uh, an internet search on, on how to, you know, build a, a nice compost. I, I built one off of a YouTube video and, uh, and that's oh. what I did. So it's, it was pretty good. So, well, let's talk about purging plastics from daily use and, and you know, what it, it's like in everything we buy. I mean, it's ubiquitous. And, and so it's so hard not to go and, and purchase something that's got, you know, a single use plastic. So how do we stop that?
0: Yeah. So plastics is as you said ubiquitous uh it is made so easy for us to bring in we are in such a convenience culture right. uh, we want we don't just want our vegetables we want our vegetables pre-chopped you know when I was in my job oh gosh if I could get it in a bag already chopped that was saving me time and that was really all I thought I cared about at that time, (laughs) Um, that's an example, but it's really all over. And so unlike the food um, section where I have really specific suggestions, I have one suggestion um, with respect to Growing awareness about the plastic, the single-use plastic in your life. Single-use plastic, by the way, just to be clear, plastic is, has all sorts of benefits in the medical field and other fields, but single-use plastic is that stuff that you touch for a few seconds or minutes, um, and then you get rid of it. Maybe you put it in your recycling bin. Maybe you put it in your trash can. A lot of it ends up in the oceans, unfortunately. Right. So the the thing, my suggestion is that you pick one thing. And what I mean by that is my guess is that you can pretty quickly look at your own life and your own consumption patterns and figure out what's that one thing that you buy every day or every week that you know you get rid of pretty quickly. And for me, when I was in the workplace, it was water bottles. Uh, I was buying at least a couple of a day. I'm embarrassed to say now. And so when I say pick one thing pick the thing that you know, you're consuming, make a commitment Uh to find an alternative to that thing. And then promise yourself, you're going to keep the commitment. So when I picked water bottles as my thing, I went out and got a cool swell, um, water bottle, stainless steel water bottle. I brought it with me everywhere. If I forgot it, I'd let myself go thirsty. So I wouldn't Forget it the next day, and that was my thing. Your other, yeah, exactly my punishment. But it's a good way to learn. Right. Um, the, the I have a friend who said I'm never buying Starbucks um, in their disposable cups again because, by the way, they look like cardboard, but they're lined with plastic. And even though many people think they're recyclable, they only about 10% of municipal recycling facilities across the U.S can recycle can separate out that plastic from the cardboard so let's not kid ourselves when we buy that starbucks cup of coffee in a disposable mug it's not actually being recycled recycled most of the time so whatever that thing is my belief is that that becomes a gateway to consciousness about all the single-use plastic that you're bringing Uh, into your life right
1: right. and
0: then once you figure that out you know gosh then there's and there are a lot of options for other things that you want to eliminate you don't have to do 100 percent, but you can get to 80 pretty quickly
1: well um, you know you talked in the book about you know if we if we you know kind of rewind a minute and the, and the reason i'll bring this topic up is, or this comment up is you know you talked about like in the edge programs like well we only made the the, the minimum requirement of 20 but then you got people going at it and they started and they were like well man we're really accomplishing like 60 percent because it was they got motivated to see the results and they kept looking for more opportunities. And that kind of, I think step, you know, yeah. applies here where, you know, you start like with the one thing, okay, it's water bottles, but then, you know, I mean, how many of us are like, you know, also taking, you know, our reusable, you know, shopping bags with us to go to the grocery store. instead of using those single use plastic bags from the grocery store, from Kroger or Walmart or whatever, Right. Yeah. And, uh, and those things aren't very good to recycle anyways.
0: Don't recycle them. If there's one thing, please take away from this podcast. you never ever put those plastic bags into the blue bin. They are recyclable but not in municipal recycling facilities where it actually clogs up the machinery can yep. injure the workers. so yeah, that's an important.
1: It was a funny thing. Uh, my, my, I was talking to my daughter the other night uh, about the bags. And I said, well, let me grab all these bags as we we're not going to put them in the recycle bag. We're going to, you know, we got to take them to Kroger or something. And she goes, oh, yeah, Dad, I just learned about this at school. You know, she's taking a sustainability, I'm uh, sorry, a sustainability class in college. And she's like, yeah, we learned you, you you don't send those to the Murphs because it clogs them up. And I was like, Yep, we just read a book about that. And That's, it was,
0: great. Yeah, That's great. That's so, great. Yeah, yeah, so that's she's, our future.
1: Right. Yeah, no, they're into it. And she's really into this uh, sustainability aspect of uh, some of the coursework she's taken. So, you know, that's so we've got good hear. stuff to talk about, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, well, okay. So what are some of the, the recycling challenges in the U.S. and at home that you see?
0: Yeah, so recycling in the U.S. is a problem. Uh, we were sending a lot of stuff to China a right. couple of years ago. China stopped taking it. Uh, we have been hovering in the U.S. at about a 34% recycling rate. Part of the problem is uh, recycling is not available to everyone in the U.S., so that's definitely part of the problem. Another challenge is that you need demand for recycled products that use right. recycled content. Uh, so please look there. for okay. look for those products, but there's not enough demand. Um you know, and the really, really big problem is labeling. There's no standardized labeling. Uh, And so, you know, those triangles that sometimes you'll see and they'll have a number in in them. Right. A lot of people think that those are recycling codes. And in fact, I even have an annex in my book with those numbers and the triangles, Uh but they're not actually a recycling code. They're, um, they're a message from one manufacturer to another of what was what plastic was used, what uh, co- compound of plastic was used to produce a given product. So we can use those numbers as kind of a cheat sheet, a proxy guide. for yeah. what works and what doesn't. But it's not a hundred percent. It just <laughs> just just so your your um, yeah, audience awesome. knows, it's a it's a guide, and that's all right. it is.
1: Right. But it's
0: important to get the recycling part right. That's why it's the third of my magic three. uh Because obviously, whatever you're recycling, if there's a a reuse for that raw material, that virgin material, that means you're not contributing to more deforestation when you're recycling your cardboard and paper. Uh, Metals, you're not having to uh, dig for the um, mine, for the 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 metals and metals and glass are infinitely recyclable sure Uh, that's not true for paper and it's not true for plastic they have shorter life spans in terms of recycling but metals is a a really good thing to recycle and it's a good package to use because it is so uh there's such a good market for it in the u.s
1: durable right yeah it's reusable right yeah absolutely um yeah well, I think one of the biggest challenges that most individuals at home face is, you know, understanding the proper way to recycle. Yeah. Isn't that the case where, you know, people are just like, they're throwing stuff in the recycle bin and they're not washing things off. It's, it's kind of cross-contaminating. They may be just throwing stuff in there they think is recyclable. It's not. Seems to me one of the biggest opportunities that we as a, you know, nation could do is do a lot better job of educating, you know, the young people, old people, you know, basically the society on, yeah. on the proper ways of, you know, recycling.
0: Yeah, you know, uh, the, uh, recycling is a bit like uh, property. It's, it's a location, location, location. Um, recycling is a very local issue. I I live in the District of Columbia. Across the street from me is Montgomery County, Maryland. We have different recycling rules. So the thing, you're absolutely right. It's important to get it right. You don't have to get 100% right, but it's important to know those things that show up in your recycling bin every week that you know you buy every single week. It's important to know whether they belong there or they don't because at, at, at minimum, It creates a lot of inefficiency in the system if you're throwing things in that don't belong there and then they have to be sorted out. But the worst part is, well, that example of the plastic bag, plastic film of any kind doesn't belong in the recycle bin and it can cause worker injury. And then you've also got, you, you raised it, contamination. If you end up throwing something in there that's really dirty with food and it gets on other stuff that would have been recyclable, and now, no longer is recyclable. Sure. You're contributing then to the problem of, of, of us not being able to recycle everything that we should be able to. So it is really important to get it right. It's uh, recycling is uh, is is important on so many levels. But I recommend it sounds a little boring, but doing a recycle audit. I actually think it's yeah. a lot of fun. You yeah. know, every once in a while, check out what's in your recycle bin. And I think you you achieve two things when you do that. One is If you do it alongside your your municipal rules for recycling, then you can quickly take out the things that don't belong and then let people know in your household, don't put this in here anymore. Yeah, right. But the, the the second thing I think that is really cool about doing a recycling bin audit is that you start to think about, and this goes back to purging plastic, you start to think about the things that you could do to reduce your waste. So if you notice, for example, as my I did an audit for a neighbor of mine, she had a whole bunch of yogurt containers. Well, she didn't think she'd make yogurt, but the pandemic hit and she suddenly saw she had a lot of time on her hands. So she started making yogurt. Um, so when you see what Especially the plastic that's in your recycle bin, if you yeah. see there's some big categories of plastic that your family always uses, it it can trigger you to think about what some good alternatives are.
1: Well, too, talking about education. I think we need a schoolhouse rock, you know video <laughs> part- on on recycling. Yeah, I think that would be good, you know
0: that that's an <laughs> Come awesome up. idea. Yeah. Come up well, up with that's something, my
1: generation. Right? Yeah, exactly. I think that'd be great. So, uh, all right. Well, are there any other ways to, to affect a change at your local communities before, you know, kind of, as we get you know, winding down here, anything else that you can do? I mean, we've kind of covered the, the top three things personally we can do and some action items that are in the book and we didn't cover all the action items, which is good because we want people to buy the book and read it, but <laughs> anything else?
0: Yeah. So one of the most exciting things for me in doing this was to realize the power of social norms, mm-hmm. how important our behavior is in terms of sending signals to those around us. And I really didn't have an appreciation of this before, but your family, your friends, your community, they notice what you do. And so if you have social media, I, I, I have an Instagram and a Facebook and a LinkedIn account. Post on there about things. If you get the bug for Zero Waste, let people know what you're doing because when you do, they will start to feel like, hmm, maybe they should be doing that too. There's some, I won't go into it now, but there's some really good research on how impactful that is. And then the second thing I'll say is just when you see the right kind of consumer-oriented businesses doing the right thing, support them. You know, your local farmers markets, we were talking about before, Mm -hmm. now I, I go to them religiously. If you have a store that sells things in bulk or you can bring your own cotton produce bag or jar and fill them, they may not exclusively do that, but if they have a big section on bulk, use them. Those are great. Those are stores that are trying to do the right thing. So the, the power of the pocketbook and, you know, the consumer vote is a big one. And as you said, Sean, if we all did these things, it really would make a huge difference.
1: Oh, that's great. No, that's good. So, well, how do people get a hold of you and, and get in contact with you and how, you know, so they can buy this book?
0: Well, I'm at a, a www.zerowasteindc.com and I've got links there to where you can get the book from independent bookstores, from you know Amazon, ebooks and so forth. I should also say that the book is part of a series called Resetting Our Future and Changemakers Books has a site. Uh, there are several other uh, climate oriented books uh, that are coming out in the same Resetting Our Future series. And that site is www.resettingourfuture.com. So I would I would recommend that to you. And uh, you're welcome to follow me on Instagram. I would love if anyone wants to join me, as I said, in the um, vegetarian cook-along that I do every week. Uh, I also post a recycling tip of the week there. So, yeah, the more the merrier.
1: Uh, this is good. Well, Stephanie, you're making a big difference in the uh, zero waste living uh, space, and I think a lot of people are going to get uh, motivated to, uh, you know, start you know, kind of living living by their uh, creed, you know, so to speak. You know, <laughs> and I think that'll be good. I, I, I think you know, a little bit helps. Every little bit helps, and. Uh, you know, people are gonna read this book and get some great ideas. Um, thank you for writing it. It helped me, and I really enjoyed it. And you know what, people it too. It's a, it's not a very long read, so it, you know, you can probably get it done in a weekend easily. Um, and um, you know, take some practical steps and and help reduce greenhouse gas and make a big difference in in our society. So. Well, Stephanie, thanks for joining the show and coming on. And, and we'll put some uh, links into uh, your contact information on my website as well. And we'll try to hopefully uh, get some some uh, people driving uh, your way to uh, purchase the book and, and get connected with you. So look look forward to it.
0: Thanks so much, Sean. This is a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, this is good. Thank you. And uh, we're looking forward to catching up soon. I wanna thank our guest Stephanie Miller for coming onto the show today. We really learned a lot about zero waste living and some practical applications that we can apply in our daily life that will make a big impact. Also, if you have questions for Stephanie or want to buy her new book, Zero Waste Living, The 80-20 Way, the Busy Person's Guide to a Lighter Footprint, check out our website at www.zerowasteindc.com or email her at stephanie at We'll also put a link to our website on my webpage. To listen to future environmental transformation podcasts, you can check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast networks or from my website at www.shawnkgrady.com. You can also follow me on Instagram or the Environmental Transformation Podcast Facebook page. If you enjoyed the podcast episode, don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends. We'd also love to hear feedback from the ET Nation about the episode and any future podcast topics you'd like for me to cover. So thanks for listening. And until next time, make a positive impact in someone's life today.